at the end of the sermon this morning, at the end of the sermon, am I on? At the end of the sermon this morning, um, I have an announcement about a uh, building project uh, that we're going to propose to the church and want the church to uh, pray about and think about and consider. And so, particularly if you're joining us uh, on the live stream this morning, uh, when I say amen at the end of the sermon, just hang with us just a few minutes so we can make just a few announcements and for me to make at least a short presentation about that, and then we will get information out to you. Um, when we look at the stories of the overcomers in the Bible, as we began to do last Sunday, we begin to see uh, this truth emerge that teaches us that whatever it is that we face, uh, Jesus overcomes that. Whatever we face, Jesus overcomes all of that if we will simply uh, let Jesus handle it. If we put it in his hands, then he will take care of it, whatever we face. Um, one of the themes that runs through the book of Revelation is this idea of overcoming. I think there's about 12 times in the book of Revelation it talks about overcoming. The first one of those, um, uh, in chapter 2, verse 7, he's talking to the church at Ephesus, and his promise at the end, he says, to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. In fact, each time he addresses the church, he, uh, those seven churches of Asia Minor, at the end he says to him who overcomes, and then there is this picture of heaven. In fact, he uses paradise here to talk about heaven. There's only three times in the New Testament the word paradise, that word is included and so at the start of the book of Revelation he talks about those who overcome and that promise of everlasting life and then when you come to the end of Revelation in chapter 21 verse 7 after he talks about the new heaven and the new earth in 21 7 he says he who overcomes shall inherit all these things and I will be his God and he shall be my son and it was there, as I read recently through the book of Revelation, that I saw this theme through Revelation about the overcomers and began to picture in my mind uh, this overcomers club in eternity and the stories they will tell of what they have overcome. There were three things as I looked to the people of the New Testament and their stories, and these will be stories that we'll be looking at this summer, of things that emerged, of things they had to overcome. And I want to put these on the screen. I want to leave these up on the screen until I get to my scriptures this morning. Uh, and I want these, there's a reason I want you to see these, because we have to begin to apply this truth to ourselves. And as I looked at the stories, some had to overcome their past failures. Some had to overcome character flaws and some challenging circumstances. I want you to begin to think this morning 
What is it in my life and my journey? What will be my story on the other, other side of what I have overcome? Is it past failures? Is it character flaws? Is it challenging circumstances? Or is it D, all of the above? <laughs> uh, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, I think would have fallen in the category of past failures. And I, I quoted Amazing Grace, and I guess that's maybe his claim to fame of being the, the hymn writer who wrote Amazing Grace, but that, that hymn comes out of his own experience and quite honestly of his past failures, being a cruel slave trader, uh, a vile sinner. Use that word vile with a little bit of <clears throat> vile. A self-professed infidel, one who did not believe nor care about God. But in the midst of a, a storm at sea in 1748, John Newton is saved and his life is completely transformed. Sixteen years later, he ends up having been called to the ministry, being the pastor in Olney, England. Olney, England. In 1748. 64 and there he's a pastor and yes there he writes hymns the most famous amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me I once was lost but now I'm found was blind but now I see and he quotes <laughs> the testimony of the overcomer the blind man from John 9 that we looked at last week once I was blind but now I see the, the blind man in talking to the Pharisees, as we saw last week, comes to that great st statement in the Scriptures in which they're trying to sort through the theology of it all. And he says, I, I don't know any about that. But what I do know is that I once was blind, and now I see, and Jesus was the reason. Figure out the rest. But in the midst of John Newton's church, about three years after he had been there, a young man by the name of William Copper, spelled C-O-W-P-E-R, joined his church with a family that William Copper lived with. Um, if, if John Newton's, what he had to overcome was the first one, past failures, and if the blind man in John 9's category that he would have fit in surely was challenging circumstances, William Copper would have fallen in that second character flaws. He was a young man. Um, he dealt with deep depression and mental illness. And he lived with a family that moved to Olney, England, and they became a part of the church. And uh, William Copper helped John Newton in the ministry of the church, but was also a gifted writer, and so he wrote a number of hymns out of his own experience. And so, in fact, John Newton and William Copper write a collection of hymns that are called the Olney Hymns for Olney, England. The most famous of William Copper's hymns, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged 
beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. I thought about him this week because in the second verse, he introduces our character, our overcomer for the day. I don't know if you remember it or not. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in, he, in his day. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to start over. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. If Jesus were handing out trophies someday in eternity, as the Overcomers Club meets and gives testimony, the trophy for the greatest story of God's grace. We don't know the man's name, but we call him the thief on the cross. Surely, of all the people that have ever lived, we would have to say the greatest story of grace is the story of the thief on the cross. And for him, it would have been number one, his past failures. That will be part of his testimony, surely, that he will tell that day. His story, the part of the story that I want to tell, even though all the gospel writers talk about the other men that were crucified that day, it's only Luke that records his conversation with Jesus. In Luke 23, verse 39, it says, Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation and we indeed justly for we have received the due reward of our deeds but this man has done nothing wrong then he said to Jesus Lord remember me when you come into your kingdom and Jesus said to him assuredly I say to you Today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, we have to deal with an issue here. Jesus makes a very definitive statement. In fact, uh, anytime Jesus, and we see, when I was a kid and we read it in the old King James, it would have been verily, verily. <laughs> Maybe it says truly, truly. Do you know what literally that word is? Amen. And it, it always tickles me to think about that because we always say, we state the truth and then we say amen. Jesus just said, amen, now I'm about to tell you the truth. <laughs> and anytime he says, amen, I say to you, you better listen. He's about to say something definitive. And that day he said, amen, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. How in the world, how in the world, does a man like that make it into 
paradise. How in the world? The people that were crucified would have been the worst of sinners. We don't know all that this man, these two men had done. In Matthew's Gospels, in Matthew's Gospel, they are described as thieves. There were two thieves. In fact, Mark's Gospel also calls them thieves. Mark's Gospel then quotes... Uh, Isaiah 53, 12, that he will be numbered among transgressors. So this man is called a thief. Secondhand, he's called a transgressor. When we come to Luke's account, in verse 39, it says they are criminals. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I have things when I study this stuff and it... it this word for criminal, I go, what is that word? And it's like, the word is bad doer. That's what that word is in the Greek. It's like, and so I, I, that translation in English, he was a bad dude. No, he was a doer of bad. He was a bad doer. He was a criminal. This is a bad dude. Think about this. The Romans crucified to make people make a public example of people. It had to be the worst of the worst so that you said, if I'm like that, this is what's going to happen to me. Their, their sin was put, their transgression, their, their lawlessness, whatever you want to call it, was put on public display. It was to be a scene of great shame, as all would see. And the Scripture tells us that day, all of the Gospels, tell us that on Jesus' left hand and on his right hand were these bad dudes, what we might call the worst of sinners. Um, the one who does not repent that day, it says in verse 39, blasphemed Jesus, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. Um, He was only concerned about physical deliverance. Get me out of this situation. If you're such a big dude, save yourself and save us. Uh, the second has a different experience. And really when I, when I see those, those two men, it seems like it's two responses that all of us make to our own guilt of sin. We can either externalize it or we can internalize it. The first, the unrepentant thief on the cross externalizes it. He acts out of his guilt. And this is one of the responses if we handle our, our failures on our own, one of the responses that is that we will act out in anger, in uh, unhealthy behavior, whatever it might be. It might externalize itself. But the second man who becomes the repentant thief, I believe he begins the journey to salvation by internalizing it. And quite honestly, we can too. We can deal with our sin, our failures, and we can either externalize it and we can continue down that road and we can flail and we can fight against it. We can act out or we can come within. But I want you to get this. Without Jesus, 
when we internalize it, it only leads to shame, which can be as great a bondage as externalizing it by acting it out. The repentant thief has a different take, and I believe it starts with internalizing it and acknowledging his own guilt. And so it says in verse 40, the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And here he comes to the place of self-realization in verse 41. And we indeed justly, man, we are getting what we deserve. We have violated the government, and this is what happens to people who do things like that. He says in verse 41, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But you see a change that happens when he says, but this man has done nothing wrong. As the penitent thief looks inside, he comes to the place of conviction place of honesty before himself and others and certainly before God to not look past his sin. He begins to understand that he was not only guilty before the Roman and their law, but he was also guilty before God. And there is a greater consequence to paying an earthly price than there is to paying an eternal price. And he comes to the place of conviction, which leads to the place of repentance. And so you see it in his prayer as he turns. And let me just say, anytime you speak to Jesus, it's a prayer, right? (laughs) What does he pray? In verse 42, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That was his prayer that day. He acknowledges him as Lord. He acknowledges his own sin. And I don't know all that he understood that day. But he turned to Christ. And he acknowledged that there was a greater kingdom. And this man that was crucified beside him was the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he says, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, don't forget me. In his prayer, he turns to Jesus in not only conviction of sin, but repentance. And by his very statement, he places his faith in Jesus. This is very simple this morning. What do we do with our failures? We can externalize them, we can internalize them, both approaches we say I will handle this myself but this man ask Jesus to handle it the message is very simple today of a choice that we will make either we will handle our failures or we will let Jesus handle our failures. The thief on the cross, in his prayer, 
repents, places his faith in Jesus. And you've got to get this so simple. In God's scheme of things, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, you've got to get this. Our sin is placed on him, Jesus. And Jesus' righteousness is placed on us. There is a transaction that is made in the moment of faith, belief in Jesus Christ, in which our sin is transferred to him and his righteousness is transferred to us. And then Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I am blown away by this thought. What are the chances? What are the chances in the hours of your death that God himself is the Savior of the world is dying beside you? Do you understand mathematically, <laughs> statistically, what are the chances that the very moment when I needed to know the Savior, it was the Savior who was dying beside me and my eyes were open and in my last moments with no righteousness of my own, with no hope that I'm ever going to do anything for God, in that moment, the Savior is there. And by my simple prayer, my sin is placed on him. And as a person with no righteousness at all, his righteousness is placed on me hours before I pass into eternity. What are the chances? You see that day, the public display was not only over the sin of those two men, but in God's scheme of things, the, dis the public display that day was of the grace of God that could save the worst of sinners who could offer nothing to God except his past failures. The only thing he had was his faith in the moment. You know, this man is different to me even than Saul of Tarsus, who is also a bad dude and was responsible for killing Christians. But I could say, you know what? Yeah, Paul was a bad dude in his past, but Jesus saved him. And look all that he did for God. And you say, oh, he passes into eternity. He's got some righteousness of his own, maybe you would say. This man has none of that. The worst of worst sinners with nothing to offer God because he's moments from death. But in his last moments, he dies next to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we discover this incredible statement of grace that whatever God did overcomes whatever we have done. What God did on the cross overcomes whatever we have done. 
even the worst of sinners with no future prospects for future righteous deeds. You see, the blood of Jesus overcomes all our sin. What I want you to hear today is if God's grace was sufficient for that man, surely God's grace is sufficient for my sin too. There is this great scripture. There's about 25 scriptures in the New Testament talk about overcoming, but one of them that man just nails this. In the middle of the book of Revelation, it says in Revelation 12:10, it's talking about the defeat of Satan, and it says, "Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. And here's the statement in verse 11. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. I believe someday in the Overcomers Club, the guy who will be holding the trophy for the greatest story, testimony of God's grace will be the thief on the cross. And whatever our past failure is, the blood of Jesus overcomes all of our sin. Satan is described there as the accuser of the brethren. Oh, he's such a snake. He draws us into sin, and then once we've sinned, he drags us down by our sin. What a joke. He promises us that this is going to give us pleasure or fulfillment or whatever, and then at the end, then he accuses us before God. He put, you get it? Isn't that sick? He pulls us into it, and then he uses it against us to pull us down. And if you're not careful, even as a child of God, you can allow the enemy to drag us down by the guilt and shame of our past failures. And I want you to know today that the blood of Jesus overcomes all of our sin. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb because the blood overcomes all and the simple point is that whatever we face Jesus overcomes it all if we allow Jesus to handle it what will we do what will you do with your past failures if you handle it on your own I know where it ends up. But if out of faith we turn to the one who died for us and let him handle it, then the blood covers it all. Amen? Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand this morning and let me pray and then I have a few things I'd like to say. If you're watching by li online, just if you'll stay with us for just a few moments. Father, today we thank you for...
the powerful blood of Jesus. And Father, we, we acknowledge that all of us have past failures that have alienated us from you. And Father, we thank you that Jesus died for the worst of sinners and Jesus died for the best of sinners. But all of us are sinners. So Father, today I pray that we would um, know how to appropriate the blood to overcome the guilt and the shame of our sin. And we trust this to you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Um, I'm gonna...